Hi, folks. Today we're going to be talking about the book War to the Knife by Thomas Goodrich. The book covers Bleeding Kansas, which was a series of massacres, battles, and just other general nastiness like terrorist attacks and robberies, that sort of thing, that took place in the Kansas Territory between pro- and anti-slavery militias in the mid-1800s before the Civil War actually began. So for a bit of historical background, slavery in the United States was always contentious, obviously. But it was contentious for kind of different reasons than we think today. The North and the South had very different economies. The South was primarily agrarian. The North industrialized a lot more rapidly. The South would often export raw materials and agricultural products. The North focused on refining existing raw materials and agricultural products, which you either got from the South or, or imported from overseas, and made those into like finished manufacturing goods. The South imported a lot of manufacturing goods, so there's always that kind of tension between tariffs on foreign goods, foreign goods, you know, depending on fluctuations in, in international products, they might have been higher quality, they might have been cheaper than domestically produced ones. It's completely understandable why northern manufacturers wanted very high tariffs. Then it's also understandable why southern consumers of these goods wanted very low tariffs. So suffice to say, you know, I don't pretend to be an economics expert, but but the North and the South had very divergent interests economically. And those interests, you know, there's the, the overall American economy, but there's this kind of fundamental split. It was present even before the revolution occurred, but was was more and more noticeable over time. And this, this division grew and grew, and people became more and more antagonistic to each other. So the institution of slavery in the United States was limited by the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which restricted slavery to what we know as the South, you know, below a certain uh, latitude or latitude line. I can't think of uh, which one it is as I, I talk on this podcast. I'm just going to kind of ramble um, about it now. I try to think and, and nothing's coming to mind, but um, limited slavery to the South and Missouri, which was above the kind of uh, dividing line. That compromise held for about 30 years until the Mexican-American War when another compromise was forged that expanded slavery to new territories acquired from Mexico that were also in the South. So in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed. There was always kind of tension between the North and the South just because they knew that their populations were so different um, and that the North's population was growing much more. And the South was always concerned that if they didn't find a way to expand, their political situation would be totally untenable. So, you know, it was nice to expand slavery to those territories, but they really wanted new states and new senators and new congressional representatives to kind of give them the political lump they needed to to kind of balance out the, the North's huge population advantage and, and later commercial advantage. What the Kansas-Nebraska Act actually did was create the Kansas and Nebraska territories, political entities that could be considered for statehood later on. And the kind of tinker to that was that the Missouri Compromise was repealed into the new Kansas and Nebraska territories when they went up for statehoods, couldn't choose if they wanted to by, by a popular election whether or not slavery would be allowed. So this was the potential for two new slave states. Realistically, the way it was perceived at the time, people thought that Kansas, which is right next to Missouri, 
would be a new slave state, and Nebraska would be a new free state. So and that, that kind of reflected the, the sentiments of the very small number of people who were actually out there at the time. The book kicks off right after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and although the Kansas-Nebraska Act seemed like it was going to be, you know, yet another compromise or maybe even something that, like, would, would nakedly benefit the um, slave states, it ended up being something that actually opened up a whole can of worms for the South and led to the total defeat of slavery in that territory. And that was because, although everyone at the time expected that Kansas would end up being a slave state because, you know, it's right next to another slave state and it was populated primarily by people who supported slavery, abolitionist activists encouraged abolitionists to move out to Kansas en masse so that they could all vote one way and make sure that Kansas would end up actually being a free state. They knew that Nebraska wouldn't be a free state no matter what, that they wanted Kansas to be that also because they had the opportunity to make that happen. The population out there was so small. Uh, I think the the largest city had like 10,000 people that if you just get a few hundred people to move somewhere, you can have a really decisive impact on seeing level elections. Uh, and if you can get a few thousand to move out there, then you can totally dominate them. And the book tracks the early uh, efforts to organize abolitionist colonies in the Kansas Territory. You know, very, very hard spraddle conditions. Uh, there's basically no infrastructure out there. And uh, Beth said, Abolitionist societies were well-funded and well-organized, so they had, you know, this kind of active guidance um, in moving people out there. And, um, you know, there were several agents in the territory working for abolitionist societies who would help people kind of settle and, and um, navigate the journey, which was perilous in its own right. You know, we described the, the steamboat conditions out there, and they were, they were really dog shit, even though um, steamboats were very advanced technology. Uh, people were really, really roughing it. And the bad conditions for the abolitionists were made worse by the fact that the locals out there kind of knew what was going on and they knew that abolitionists were coming out for the specific purpose of dominating the state electorally. And, you know, most people in Missouri and most people who, you know, settled in Kansas, you know, I, I don't think many people think that Missouri is the South right now, or even Kansas is a South right now, but it was informed by Southerners. It was primarily populated from people. Um, they were more Southern culturally. Even if they didn't own slaves, they didn't necessarily have a problem with slavery. Uh, they were middle class. They maybe aspired to own slaves because slaves were really, really valuable out there and really, really useful out there because the population overall was just so small. Um, and again, like it, was, it was small because there's like nothing out there. Like there, It was not a comfortable life for people. And so it's this remote area. Uh, the locals are faced by this flood of newcomers. The newcomers have interests that are specifically antagonistic to that of the locals. And there's not a lot of law enforcement. So what do the locals do? They like beat the shit out of them. There's all sorts of antagonism. Yeah, especially the early chapters of the book is primarily slavery supporters in kind of local Kansans roughing up or intimidating or just doing bad stuff to the abolitionist activists. But the abolitionist activists keep coming. 
And although the locals are these big, tough guys, I mean, you, they're like frontiers and they have this very fearsome reputation and they, they heard it. The abolitionists and the, they're called free soilers, are very well organized and they're very well funded. And so they can kind of ride out the storm and uh, they resist the intimidation for the most part. They acquire uh, Sharps rifles, which were then brand new and were really, really um, accurate and accurate at long ranges, which was uh, very important out there. And so they, they kind of, um, even though they were very outnumbered and they kind of faced all sorts of opposition from all sides, they weren't going quietly and their numbers built over time. And so there was a lot of low-level violence and even some murders, but the real split began when the city of Lawrence, Kansas was sacked. So Lawrence was one of the, the oldest and most successful of the abolitionist colonies. And it spooked people because there's all these outsiders moving in. They're pretty open about the fact that they want to politically control the place. And then there's an election, and the election had enormous amounts of fraud on those sides, but the pro-slavery faction likely would have won the election if the election was fair. You know, the pro-slavery side had more people that supported it and, and more straight up votes, but as this kind of massive show of force, tons of slavery supporters from Missouri came over to Kansas and voted in the election. And so, you know, I think, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's like the, the it would have likely been like 3,000 votes for the pro-slavery side and, you know, 1,500 votes for the anti-slavery side. And the final election tally was like 20,000 votes for the pro-slavery side and 3,000 for the anti-slavery side. So like there's, there's fraud happening on both sides. I don't think that was really in dispute. But the slavery supporters were not able or willing to conceal their fraud. And so you have this election and everyone kind of knows it's a sham. And because everyone knew that the election was kind of a sham, the anti-slavery side used that as license to create their own sham state legislature. And so the abolitionists basically created, uh, headquartered in Lawrence, uh, their own state government that wasn't recognized by anyone and didn't operate as a state government, but would you know, issue proclamations and try to collect taxes and fine people and, and do all sorts of stuff that it, the state government does, but it has no actual authority. You know, the state, the real state government that's recognized by the federal government is all somewhere else. And as you can imagine, that created a lot of uh, issues. And they would also actively interfere with state law enforcement when state law enforcement came to enforce actual laws, like, you know, arrest people for breaking and entering, that sort of thing. And so eventually the governor called in the militia and went to Lawrence to actually disband the fake state legislature. And there wasn't much, if any, fighting there. I actually don't think there was any fighting. The legislature, like, voluntarily disbanded and there was a kind of ceasefire agreement worked out. But after the sham abolition state legislature, legislature had disbanded, the militiamen who, like most Kansans at the time, were pro-slavery, just totally sacked the city and, and burned down a bunch of buildings and just stole a bunch of shit. And so again, like there's this there's this recurring thing where it's like, okay, well there's this kind of there's always this like kind of ex escalation, but 
people don't really know to pump the brakes and they don't really know to operate under, you know, they don't really know why it's good to operate under like an actual system. And then they're constantly surprised when new weird stuff starts, starts caffeinating and things don't slow down. In fact, they speed up and get worse. And so the, the sacking of Lawrence was obviously a big setback for the abolitionists in Kansas, but national politics kind of overtook that because there was the infamous congressional cane assault on uh, an abolitionist congressman by pro-slavery uh, congressman uh, for some very personal insult that, that the abolitionist congressman made on the Senate floor. And I, I think it was, it was the guy like said that the another pro-slavery legislator was like raping someone. It was like you, you use very, very harsh language when discussing this, the slavery issue is intentionally disrespectful. And so the legislators, the this pro-slavery legislator's cousin or nephew or something like that just beat the shit out of the abolitionists on the Senate floor. And it was just like, wh why are people having fights in, in the halls of Congress? Like everyone, you know, everyone, even at the highest levels was becoming a little bit deranged. And that definitely filtered down in, into these frontier areas. And this is where John Brown enters the equation. And there's been a lot of revisionism about John Brown lately. He's this tad of fanatical anti-slavery activist preacher. But the, the book, and this is probably one of the only books that does this, does a really good job of sketching out what Brown was actually like, which is like he was this fucking crazy person. Like he was this very deranged murderer. And the big thing that sets off uh, Bleeding Kansas is... Brown's murder of several pro-slavery settlers. And so this is portrayed in his like popular myth as like this kind of mutual combat between him and these evil pro-slavery people. Uh, but really what it was is like Brown and his, he had, you know, several like henchmen and they would go to people's houses at night and just murder them with swords. And so it was like kind of like a serial killer um, and like, you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere. You can't call the cops. Like, what are you going to do if a bunch of people show up at your house to kill you? You kind of rely on the good graces of people. Like, why would you just murder this random person who's in his, his house, especially if he doesn't own any slaves? He's not doing anything to you. Uh, but Brown, you know, he was this total fanatic and he was perfectly comfortable taking the ward view, innocent civilians. And as you can imagine, this kind of made everyone on the pro-slavery side panic because no one knows who's going to be next. And there's this serial killer on the loose. And not only is there a serial killer on the loose, but like a third of the population of the state here and supports the serial killer and thinks what he's doing is good. And this is made worse by the fact that you can't get any reliable information out there. You're, you're relying entirely on word of mouth. And so Brown and his henchmen murdered five people basically at random. I don't think that they had any one-standing feuds tied to them, and they didn't have any prior contact with Brown. They were just random pro-slavery settlers. But in the pro-slavery side, you know, this crime, which is peace horrible and it's unright, gets embellished. And it's like, okay, there's, you know, hundreds of, of abolitionists in the Ronald Warpath, and they're killing women and children. And so it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck moment for the pro-slavery settlers, and you get this huge flood of people from Missouri kind of mobilizing into these war bands. And as a result, the abolitionists also mobilize their own war bands, and so you get these groups of like 40 or 50 people on either side. They're roaming the countryside hunting for each other. 
And there are lots of innocent people with either abolitionist or pro-slavery sentences who get caught in the middle of this, right? Like, you have five people show up at your house to kill you in the middle of the night, you're in the middle of nowhere, like you're having a really bad day. You have 50 people show up to your house, you have just no shot at all. And so there are a lot of crimes against civilians on both sides. I think one, one thing that stuck out to me was uh, this random German immigrant, you know, a lot of immigrants moved out there. They weren't particularly political, but you know, Germans had the reputation of all being abolitionists. And when a personally war band caught up to him, they scouted him. Uh, he wasn't involved in anything. It was just like, here's an abolitionist. The abolitionists did this horrible thing to us, and we're going to do horrible stuff to them too. And I promise I won't spend the whole episode just recounting the events of the book. I really do recommend this book. It's a kind of one-of-a-kind look at what this period was like that's not necessarily sympathetic to the pro-slavery side, or rather gives it its fair shake. If you look at, at modern coverage of it in history books or just on Wikipedia, it looks like these slavery supporters are just these like deranged, crazy people. And, you know, certainly there was a lot of very low-level aggression early on, but that's never really put into context. And what really set things off was this kind of like total nightmare that started unfolding in the backwoods of Kansas. And, you know, it's, it's not entirely unreasonable what the pro-slavery people were doing. And in the same way, like it's not entirely unreasonable what the abolitionists were doing, right? They faced a lot of violence on, on their in their own right. But like there's there were two sides to the story. Neither side is gonna be particularly sympathetic, I think, to modern audiences, but like you really need both sides to get a good understanding of this event and the kind of tragedy of uh, bleeding Kansas and the, the American Civil War overall, right? And right now we're we're just kind of given this sermon about this heroic person, John Brown, and the, the noble crusade against slavery. And, you know, in reality, John Brown was this just complete monster. And he made a bad situation that much worse. And, you know, eventually tens of millions of people died. The book is also revealing because it kind of shows you that Bleeding Kansas really was a civil war in miniature where you get this early success by the pro-slavery side. You know, there are these really tough uh, frontiersmen or, you know, you, the, the Southern military or sovereignty, you know, gradually volunteers started flowing into Kansas from all over the South, but it was, it was nothing compared to the huge flood of abolitionists and just regular immigrants from the North, um, which, which gradually completely overwhelmed the slavery supporters. But yeah, it's, it's like, so there's these early successes from the slavery supporters that are the three gashing kind of cavalry rares. And then the better organized side is able to endure. They have mod much more modern weaponry, right? The Sharps rifles were huge out there and, and made them much more deadly than you know, people with just revolvers, these kind of antiquated muskets. Uh, and eventually, there's only so many rabbits that the slavery supporters can pull out of a hat, and they're just completely overwhelmed by this huge flood of numbers and equipment that they didn't possibly hope to match. And it's interesting to see the parallels between Bleeding Kansas and the Civil War, which is only a few years later. But it's also really interesting, just from a contemporary perspective, to see the parallels between this and, and what people propose online all the time, right? Like the 
the uh, online right, this is, you know, everyone hates me for my Civil War takes, but the online right said the same thing that the people out in Kansas were saying, which is like, we're these big tough guys, the guys we're up against are these huge pussies, there's no way they could possibly compete with us, right, we have all the guns, we're these big, rugged, you know, Yellowstone, um, Navy SEAL commando guys, and what do you know, like, the um, they were right, you know. This the, they were not making up that they were better on an individual level than uh, all the abolitionists were moving out there. But at a certain point, like qual- uh, quantity becomes a quality all of its own, and they just couldn't compete. And also, there was the the fundamental disconnect where the pro-slavery settlers could get together for big events, but it, it took kind of a Herculean effort, right? They could get. 800 people together to sack Lawrence, Kansas, but it took the governor ordering them to do it, and it was, you know, this kind of rowdy fair. They relied mainly on the fact that there was no opposition, and when organized opposition finally showed up, they didn't have any of the infrastructural groundwork laid to actually respond to that, and that just made them panic and become out of incoherent. And there was also the discrepancy in the motivation of the participants in Bleeding Kansas. Um, so, you know, the, the evolutionists moving out there were fanatics, right? They're willing to relocate across the entire country, endure this incredible hardship to combat the institution of slavery, and they have a religious justification for this, right? They're involved in a grand crusade against this great evil. The people who support this evil thing are evil themselves, right? So they had this very, very powerful motivation, and... The pro-slavery side, it's mostly local people who are defending their way of life. Many of them don't even own slaves. And even if they vaguely support slavery, right, there's only so much you can, you know, conjure up in your own motivation to support this thing that you don't benefit from. And at the end of the day, right, if you're a Missouri Raider in Kansas, like you can just go back to Missouri, right? You don't need to stick around. It, for an abolitionist, if you wanted to kind of abandon the fight, you need to travel across the entire country. Um, if you're a, a Missouri bushwhacker, you just need to go a few miles over the board. You can check out. The book's title is War to the Knife, which is part of a pro-slavery slogan, War to the Knife and Knife to the Hilt, which sounds really cool. But the entire book gives you the impression that ultimately it was only the abolitionists were willing to really do that. You know, there were the only ones willing to stick the knife all the way in. And there was just this huge discrepancy in motivation. So the, the pro-slavery side, they can get this huge war band together. They can go raid these people they don't like. But there's just a level of derangement to the abolitionist actions, right? John Brown is literally a serial killer. And people are willing to line up behind the serial killer. They're willing to give him shelter. And they're just willing to do anything to win. And most people are not willing to do anything to win. But if you are willing to do anything to win, that can help you out a lot. And there's an incident that the book describes that I think is very revealing in this respect, where John Brown's gang stumbles upon this cabin in the middle of the woods. Yeah, the the person in the cabin is a southerner. He didn't own slaves like it's a dirt poor family cabin. There's only this young guy and his pregnant wife there. And the gang sneaks up on the cabin, sticks a gun barrel um, in through the door, and just shoots the pregnant wife. And it's one of these, like, like, it's like a horror movie. Like, it's this really horrible thing. 
But just imagine the terror that pretty much everyone on the pro-slavery side could have felt where they could be doing nothing. They could be sitting in their house. They could not even be involved in politics. And someone on the other side would just go to their house and, and murder them for no reason. And if you're faced with that kind of threat and you're not in this state of like absolute fanaticism, the smart thing to do is just leave. Right. And that's what people did. So, you know, Kansas had a majority of its population supporting slavery at the start of the conflict. And by the end, you know, it's not really an ethnic cleansing, but like pretty much everyone who supported slavery was out of Kansas by the end of, of bleeding Kansas. And that was because even after the fighting ended, they would keep up these raids. And not only did they keep up those those raids, but they would target people who were totally uninvolved, people who were just Southerners, right? People with Southern accents or who were from the South, even if they didn't own slaves, even if they weren't, you know, part of these um, pro-slavery militias, they wanted them gone. And then after they take them out, they started pushing into Missouri too. And the that uh, willingness to take things all the way was never present on the pro-slavery side, as tough as they were. And you see the same discrepancy today. I mean, I, you know, everyone hates me. I know that I'm widely hated for this view, but like there's a total disconnect in motivation where, you know, you look at the Floyd rides and the just craziness from the average liberal. They're taking down historical monuments. They're blocking roads. They're shooting people. They don't suffer any consequences for it. They don't feel bad about it. Uh, in fact, they feel furious that anyone would even consider stopping them. And relative to that, there's just kind of total passivity from conservatives, despite the fact that, you know, I, I totally believe the figures, conservatives are physically stronger, they own more guns, they are more people with military services. That level of fanaticism isn't there. And I, it's one of those things where I think it would take decades to really build. So I think the idea of Civil War II is really dumb, like it was dumb back then when there were tons of, of state militaries and states were very autonomous and people were, were loyal to their state and would be willing to lay down their lives for their state, which that isn't the case now at all. And so it was, it was dumb back then. It was dumb and bleeding Kansas where the slavery side kind of set up uh, the situation where they thought they would pull off this clear win, but were totally in over their heads because they weren't willing to commit to it the way the abolitionists were. And in, in the Civil War, you know, the, the South wins this huge military victory the valuable run, but they're not willing to push the knife in, right? They're not willing to sack Washington, D.C. They're not willing to go all the way. Meanwhile, the Union was willing to go all the way. They're willing to target random farmers in the middle of nowhere in the South. You know, everyone loves uh, today's Sherman's March because they want to inflict this personal violence on their political enemies. The Union was willing to do that. The, the Confederates never were, um, at least at a wide scale. And so when you talk about this thing today, it's obvious that people are, are in fantasy land. And you just see this online. And, you know, I did why people don't want to hear it from me. I don't pretend to be this, like, big, tough guy or super knowledgeable about the military or, you know, the Hamabad shot of the Abad gorilla. But it's just obvious that people kind of are considering everything. I, I saw this post, a friend sent it to me, um, where the guy was like, I think a future American insurgency would be like suburban dads planning IEDs after work and then coming back home. And it's it's just like it's it's fantasy, right? Like people heart like they people imagine that thing because it would be easy and they wouldn't have to disrupt their life very much. But in reality, like you're talking about being like a terrorist 
And if you're a terrorist, like lots of people are going to try to kill you. And they're good, you know, they're good at killing people like you. And it's just like, you want to like shake and be like, shut the fuck up. Like you have no idea what you're talking about. Like don't, you know, don't become radioactive like this because it's just a fantasy. But, it, you know, fantasies can get you in trouble. Fantasies can get you killed. And so if you've got people with these uh, war walkers, they're not terrorists. You know, they might be um, these brave, like, bush, bushwhacker guys who are willing to go deep into enemy territory, but there, there are things that they're always not going to be willing to do. I mean, don't pretend, don't get yourself in a situation where that's the only thing that's going to bail you out. Um, and I, I often think about um, General Wrangel. You know, I always think about General Wrangel, but there's uh, the lessons from the Russian Civil War and why Wrangel was so effective, whereas his predecessors were not. And um, a friend came up with this term, um, and I, I might butcher what he, you know, how he explained it to me, but it's called legitimism. And legitimism is basically always presenting the appearance of legitimacy, which is, you know, easy to say, um, but like means a lot of things, right? What is, is someone who, who is legitimate? Like he has the, the right to rule, the right to be in power, that sort of thing. And General Wrangel, even when he was at his weakest, um, and he only had a few units under his command, those units were um, spick and span. He, he was an absolute stickler for discipline. Like, even if the Russian army was like, you know, 200 guys under him, those 200 guys were going to conduct themselves to a very, very high standard. And when they showed up, you know, you knew that what he was saying was for real. And, you know, even though what he was saying was for real, like he meant like his orders would be enforced, his orders were also not going to be unreasonable. And, you know, that, that was a big problem with the white army in general, where you had these guys that claim to be government officials, but they're not acting like government officials, right? They're, they're um, killing people extrajudicially. Wrangel has a, a, this series of clashes he describes this in Always With Honor, I can't re recall his name, but he was another uh, white general who was a World War I fighter ace. And that guy would just hang anyone he talked back to him no matter what. And Wrangel, you know, Wrangel hanged a lot of people, but he would always hang them after a short trial. And the trial might be five minutes long, but there was a trial and everyone kind of knew what was going on. And it wasn't just because you pissed Wrangel off, right? You broke the law in some way, you undermined the military, that sort of thing. For For others, like... It was a, there's a totally arbitrary process. And when you have this totally arbitrary process, people don't know how to act. And that, those feelings become very contagious. And once kind of order is lost, it's tough to, to put the genie back in the bottle. And with, with Bleeding Kansas, you saw all the time how the pro-slavery side were, were constantly undermining themselves, right? They win this huge political victory in Lawrence where they, they dissolve the enemy government. And instead of it being like this clear official reaction, right, like the adults are back in the room, you're not going to have this rogue legislature, you're going to obey all of our laws, they instead act totally illegally and just start burning down people's homes who they don't like. And, uh, you know, other sort of stuff that's like not, you can't cloak that in an official process. And so pro-slavery settlers might complain about violence from abolitionists, but violence against abolitionists was super common. And, you know, I mean, there are, the book details how, like, there were plenty of people on the pro-slavery side who were uncomfortable with what was happening. And it's just because the situation was obviously going to spiral out of control. And when, you, when you're in that state of anarchy, like the one that was created, 
it's the most organized and the most ruthless side that's going to win. And guess what, guys? Like, that's not you. Yeah, the, the evolutionists were well organized. They were getting really advanced weaponry from out east. And they could, they could um, win a free-for-all in a way that just scattered farmers who wanted to help and didn't want these outsiders to kind of take over their territory could not do. And people just get blinded by their own strength. And they're not really thinking at the scale that's involved in these, these really titanic struggles, right? Bleeding Kansas, that was pretty small. I think it was like 150 people died total. But it was this huge national conflict that involved tens of thousands of people and an enormous amount of money. And it spread across this very wide area. And, you know, that was small potatoes compared to the, the Civil War. And I, I think that people today don't really think at that scale, but you have to think long-term and kind of civilizationally. And at that level, it's not individual strength that matters particularly. Like, it's always good to, to you know, know how to use a gun and to be physically fed and, and that sort of thing. But, like, the real power is institutional and systemic power. And if you're not working to establish that, please, for the love of God, don't enter into a conflict because you're not going to win it. You're just going to get destroyed. And all the good ideas or pleas for mercy in the world aren't going to help you out. So in conclusion, I really strongly recommend this book. Uh, again, it's War to the Knife by Thomas Goodrich. It's this at least one of a kind as far as I've seen look at a period that's either brushed over or really misrepresented. And it's, it's an engaging book. I read it all in one, one single sitting. It's action-packed. And it also is just very sensitive to everyone's perspective. You're not going to be really sympathetic to either side by the end of this. And you're really not going to be sympathetic towards the figures who are presented as the heroes of the period, like John Brown, right? John Brown was this absolutely monstrous guy. And the book is um, bookended by John Brown's execution and then his raid on Harper's Ferry. And, you know, Brown was one of the few successful accelerationists, right? He was doing this horrible stuff out in Kansas. And then he, he basically stages a terrorist attack in Harper's Ferry in an effort to make uh, a huge war inevitable. And he succeeded in that tragically, and, and millions of people died. There's a movie on the period uh, following Bleeding Kansas that I strongly recommend called Ride with the Devil, which is about a group of Confederate bushwhackers during the Civil War. And it hits a lot of the same beats in that it really humanizes the Confederate or pro-slavery perspective in a way that they're just not humanized today. You know, war is not a, a Marvel movie, and I think that, you know, People see themselves as the heroes of Marvel movies, but I think that often there's the kind of supervillain effect that you see among conservatives where they know they're the bad guys in movies. And so they, they kind of ape the mannerisms of the bad guys. It's like a, a kind of power fantasy. And I don't know, like I, I think like everyone just needs to come down to earth a little bit. And this book is great because it, it's, it brings everything um, very far down to earth and, and uh, shows you war, the most personal kind of war there is on uh, nothing but human terms. And that's all I've got for this week. There are two more episodes that are kind of in the hopper and should definitely be out by the end of the month. But uh, yeah, I'll see you guys around. If you have any comments, please leave them below. I do read them and, and take them personally. So if you say something mean, um, you, could, you could probably you know, like fuck up my whole day. Uh, so yeah, please don't do that. Bye.